I love me my bluegrass, and they gave me a Father's Day gift of bluegrass. I hope you enjoyed it, but it was only for me, I think. <laughs> a few weeks ago, we, uh, we watched as uh, Marguerite Hawkins and Evelyn White gave their moms a day off on Mother's Day, and they did the announcements and the prayers, and I thought, hey, I've got a daughter. I wouldn't mind taking Father's Day off, and it turns out my daughter is an ordained EPC pastor and one of the best communicators out there as far as I'm concerned. Rachel Toon is the Dean of Spiritual Formation at Montreat College, one of our great Christian colleges in North Carolina. She is, of course, a daughter of this uh, church, and uh, it is my uh, real delight to bring her to our pulpit uh, today. So I want to introduce to you the person who made me a father for the first time, the Reverend soon to be the Reverend Dr. Next Rachel year. Megan Toon. <laughs> so. Love you, Dad. Um, so I've always, I've always, I'm actually going to preach another sermon before this sermon, because what are you going to do, fire me? I don't, I don't live here. I don't work here. Um, so I've always loved bluegrass, um, because Dad's always loved bluegrass. He taught me to love it from an early age, because if you don't know this, he's a Yakima redneck in his heart of hearts. Um, so I grew up loving that, but now I live in a place, um, I live in the Appalachians in western North Carolina. Um, so it's not like a, a one-off we do for fun, you know, it's not, it's, it's not just like, oh, let's just do it for this week, it's kind of every now and then, no, it's, it's a thing, right? And so I get to play bluegrass all the time, um, my college students love it, and for very interesting reasons, I thought you just might like to know this. So um, many of my college students are not believers, or they're not quite sure what they think about the whole Christian thing. But there's a very consistent trend. And if there is a person of faith who is, or, or if there's a person of faith in the life of a 19-year-old, do you have any guesses as to what that relationship would be? Who is that person of faith consistently? Any ideas? It's the grandparent. So if there is a 20-year-old who has a Christian in their life, it's usually grandma or grandpa, or both. And you know what grandpa listens to? Alan Jackson. Right? So a lot of my college kids who aren't sure what they like, if they're not sure about faith, they're like, yeah, this contemporary Christian music is kind of weird. We don't know. But man, I put on some power in the blood. And, and the words of one of my students, I can get down to a hymn all day. Um, so grandma and grandpa, um, I said, that's not my sermon actually, but that's a shout out for you. I wonder if you actually know uh, what a big deal you really are particularly for Generation Z. I think the grandparent relationship is increasingly the most important one. Um, so shout out to you, granddads. Um, you keep on listening to Alan. Uh, it's sticking. It's doing a good thing. Uh, so back when I was a freshman in high school, uh, I had a youth leader who was also incidentally a Chapel Hill elder who shall remain nameless. And said elder mentioned to me that they knew how to make homemade fireworks. I found very intriguing and very interesting. And so I, um, uh, I did a little uh, supply, you know, recon, and I found a two-liter plastic bottle and some crystal Drano, and that's not the complete recipe for anybody who's documenting this. Um, don't try this at home. But I convinced this elder uh, to show me how to do this, you know, shake up our Bible study and do something a little more spiritually formative in a different kind of a way. And so this elder agreed. And so uh, naturally, we decided to try our experiment in the most sensible and spacious place, which would be the church parking lot. And so we did it right beneath, this was, I don't know why we did this, but right beneath dad's office window, which if you don't know, is like back over, right? And so um, here's what I've discovered. I would have been quite the contribution to the army. 
Uh, I'm actually pretty good at making things blow up. Uh, in fact, maybe a little bit uh, too naturally good at it. And what was supposed to be a gentle little was this earth-shattering, window-shaking bang um, that has stained the asphalt for literally years. If they haven't repaved it, I think they've repaved it, but if they haven't, you could still, you could still see like the impact. Uh, and so thankfully, we were smart enough to do this on a Friday, right? The church offices are closed on Friday. So there was not supposed to be anyone around to call the SWAT team. Uh, but who knew that one person decided he forgot something in his office on that particular Friday? And so after an explosion that made the Hindenburg sound like Pop Rocks, um, Dad comes tearing down the stairs and out the side door. Uh, in a blaze of glory, and he immediately assesses the situation. There's a guilty 15-year-old girl and a guilty uh, church elder, both holding Crystal Drano. And so he has identified what has, in fact, taken place, and he shouts in great exasperation, what on earth were you thinking? Why would you try something like this without me? My poor Uncle Dan, I love you, Dan. I know we've been giving you a heart attack for a long time now. Um, Dan runs the facilities, if you don't know that, and so we keep him busy. Um, sometimes dads surprise us, don't they? They're full of surprises. And this morning, we're going to dive into what is quite possibly the most famous dad story in the Western world. And this particular dad is never going to respond how you think he's going to respond, the way that you would expect him to, maybe even the way that he's supposed to. Uh, but before we get to it, I just want you to keep kind of two questions in your head as we listen to this. And question number one is, who is the story really about? And number two is, who is the story actually for? Who's listening to this story? Because the answer is probably not what you think. It might surprise you, and it might have something to say to you. So we are in Luke chapter 15. If you're old school and want to actually open your Bible, I support that. It's good for you. Uh, and so we're going to start at verse 1. And so in chapter 15, we start with Jesus doing his very Jesus-y thing, which is hanging out with all of the wrong people and putting all of the right people into a tizzy. Right people, right? And so um, this is the conversation that happens. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and scribes muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And then Jesus told them this parable. And what proceeds, are, uh, Jesus goes on to tell his three great lost and found stories. So the first is the story of the lost sheep, right? You've, uh, you folks have probably heard that one before. The shepherd misplaces his sheep. He treks all over the backcountry to find it. When he brings it home, he throws a party to celebrate with all his neighbors. And then we have the story of the lost coin, where the woman somehow manages to misplace a significant percentage of her retirement. And so she turns the house upside down until she finally finds her coin, and then she throws a party for all of the neighbors, and everybody comes and has a celebration. And then he comes to the last story of the lost thing. Um, but this one has a few more plot twists, and it starts like this. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. And after he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, 
and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. Now, you've probably heard that story before. So we're going to try it again a little differently. So once upon a time, uh, there was a successful businessman. He had two sons. And he was a very well-respected man in the, com- in the community. Uh, but his relationship with his two boys was complicated. Um, and the youngest was particularly mouthy. And, and one day he came to his dad and said, Dad, I've decided something. I want all the money I'm going to get when you die so I can go live my best life right now without you in it. And instead of responding how any sane person would respond, which is, I ain't dead, it ain't yours, and until you wipe that entitled smirk off your face, you can't buy a bag of Doritos with my money, uh, the dad does something very different, and something actually a little bit insane. He gave this snot-nosed punk exactly what he asked for. He gave him what he wanted. Right then and there, he went to the bank, he liquidated half of his company's assets, millions of dollars, wrote a check, handed it over. And predictably, this kid took the next flight out to Vegas, and uh, you can use your imagination. Right? It did not take him very long to blow through all of that money on slot machines and girls and on drugs. And right around the time when he was been blowing through his last dollar, a world pandemic hit and the economy crashed. And all of a sudden, all of his party buddies were a little bit less friendly, and things got really bad really fast. And as quickly as his extravagant wealth had come into his life, his desperation hit him. He crashed and burned. Things got so bad that he had to start running drugs for the dealer he used to buy from. And so he got so hungry that he actually wanted to eat out of the dumpsters he was doing business behind. He was getting desperate. Reality came for him, and it came with a vengeance. And this is what happens next. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up went to his father. Now, over this last Memorial Day weekend, I went with a couple friends uh, to hike the Art Loeb Trail. Um, is anybody from the East Coast, anybody heard of that Art, Art Loeb Trail? We don't have enough Southerners in here. Yeah, yay, we got one. Thank you, sir. Applause to you. Um, and so uh, this is one of the hardest hikes in uh, the Appalachian Mountains. And now before you do what West Coast people do and get condescending and judgy of Appalachian Mountains, they're not mountains, they're hills. Let me tell you something, okay? The Appalachians know they're not as tall or majestic as Rainier or the Rockies. And the Appalachian Mountains are insecure about it. And so they're going to take it out on you in different ways. Um, and so over the course of this 31-mile hike... We were going to gain 7,000 feet, but we're only going to end less than 1,000 feet higher than we started. So if you're not a math person, you're like, I am not, my brother is, but I'm not. It means we were doing this the whole time. Okay, so you don't actually go up. You just get punished with no reward, right? So that's that's how how the Appalachians like to treat you. Um, 
And so, uh, but that was not the only factor at hand here. So there's also the weather. Uh, May is usually magnificent in Western North Carolina. It's a gorgeous time of year. Again, if anybody you from the East Coast, uh, you know that. Uh, and of course, that partic this particular May was freakishly cold, with somehow the chance of freezing rain and thunderstorms, which don't even usually go together. Uh, but here we are. Uh, but we're like, ah, it'll be fine. I mean, I'm a Northwestern girl, right? We don't hike in the rain. We don't hike. Uh, so it's like, yeah, we got this. But there was one other factor that we hadn't fully considered, and that's that we are all now in our 30s. I'm the baby of the group. I'm 30. And I've discovered something. That when you turn 30, everything in your body starts trying to die on you. <laughs> and you can't just, like, decide to go hike 31 miles in two days and gain 7,000 feet and not have consequences. And I found this very distressing. Um, my feet still hurt. I don't even know how that, how that works. Uh, so so uh, anyway, we're still, we are also our math was wrong. It was a whole disaster. So we were still miles away from the end. And it was 9.30 at night. We were hiking in the dark, in the freezing rain, and in an exorbitant amount of pain due to overconfidence in our abilities. And I had a thought. And my thought was this. You know? Maybe this wasn't a very good idea. <laughs> so I am deeply empathetic with the younger son in this moment of his life. <laughs> that was the moment he had. You know what? This is not a good idea. This is not a good idea. And the literal Greek, if we're going to nerd out for just a little bit, of this passage is very interesting. In your Bible, it's translated into our English expression of he came to his senses, um, which, which is a good way to understand that. But the Greek is literally, he came to himself. When he came to himself, I think that's very interesting. Because this whole time, the youngest son has actually been lost to himself. And before he can deal with any other relationship in his life, he's got to deal with that. So he comes to himself and he comes up with a plan. He's going to ask his dad if he can be brought on just as the minimum wage worker hired staff. And then he starts practicing his speech. And I think there's another really important thing to notice in this part of the story, in these handful of verses. Did you notice his motives for going home? They're not great. Read it again, right? They are not great. Where's the passage? Uh, hey, my father's servants are eating. I'm starving. I know. I'll go home. Uh, it, he, at the very best, is starting from a place of pragmatism, right? Where I'm starving here. I eat a little humble pie and go home. I won't be. That option is a better option than this option. It's not I hurt my dad's feelings and I feel bad. And I think we have reason to believe that he ends, in the story, he ends in a very different place than he starts. But he starts out with some real shady motives for going back home. And that's really good news for us. Because that means that we can have really shady motives too. And we could still go home. And I think that's a human kind of thing. We tend to have pretty mixed motives. And we can go home to the father. And not only is he not, un not, only is he totally uninterested in you cleaning up your act first, he's actually not even very interested in you cleaning out your heart first. Because he can take care of that. He's going to sort that out. That's what he does. Uh, because in the Bible, repentance is not an emotion. It's an action. And it starts with just a very simple reality check. I think we tend to spiritualize stuff when, in fact, the Bible is very realistic and pragmatic in a lot of ways. It's a reality check of, 
what I'm doing with my life right now is not working the way that I thought it was going to work. I think I might need to try, try something else and maybe even give the father a chance. That's repentance. And a chance is all the father needs because this is what happens next. We're at verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now we just prayed the Lord's Prayer right at the end of our prayers of the people. And in that prayer, Jesus teaches us to address God a certain kind of way. He teaches us to address God as Abba, which is the word for dad. It's the personal relational title or the personal relational word you would use to address a father. And Jesus also knows that the word dad is a very loaded word in our world, isn't it? It could be a little complicated. And for a lot of people in this room, and for a lot of my college kids, Father's Day is a very hard day. It is a very hard day. Because maybe you had a dad who walked out, or you had a dad who was abusive, or an addict, or maybe he's distant or critical. And if your earthly father's any of those things, it's real hard not to think that your heavenly father isn't something like that. And even on the best day, even the most loving, attentive, invested, faithful dads, I have a spoiler alert, they're all still sinful and broken human beings too. So even the most faithful father is still a sinner who needs Jesus. And Jesus knows this, which is why he goes to very great lengths in this parable uh, to define for us what kind of father Yahweh, God, actually is. Jesus is going to give us the description. Because Yahweh is the kind of dad who stands at the end of the driveway every day looking for you, even after you spit in his face and blew all his money out in Vegas. Right, that's the kind of dad Yahweh is. And he, when you finally do come back for your kind of shady reasons, he cuts off your very half-hearted apology of speech uh, because it's not about the speech. It was never about the speech. He doesn't care. He's just really glad you're home and wants to throw a party. That's the kind of dad that God is. And that's how we need to try and learn to understand that's how God feels about us. Now, if I was writing the story, this would be the end. We'd be done. And that would make sense because that's how the other two parables end, right? Lose a sheep, throw a party. Lose a coin, throw a party. But the story's not done because there's actually another person involved and we need to hear from him. So we're at verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. And so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has, has him back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry and refused to go in. Now, a lot of you have maybe heard this story before. But if you hadn't, you would have totally forgotten the older brother existed. Because he gets sort of kind of mentioned in verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. We know there's more than one. That's all we get about him until this moment. Right? And honestly, Big Brother's probably pretty used to being the afterthought. This is not new 
in his life. Uh, because their whole lives, baby brother has always been the eye of the family hurricane, the source of all the drama, the reason that dad can't sleep at night, and because big brother is actually responsible and has a stable life, he gets overlooked. Ah, thank God the older one is fine because the younger one never is. That's been, that's been the narrative for their lives. And Big Brother finally loses his ever-loving mind. He's done. Uh, the little brother broke Dad's heart. He probably damaged the family business and his inheritance, by the way, irreparably, uh, putting everyone at great financial risk. Right? I'm not, I don't know anything about business, but I assume the people in here who do know that you just don't like, get rid of half of everything and have that be fine. So put everybody at great financial risk. And after all the chaos that the youngest has left in his wake because of all his stupid and his selfish decisions, he gets a freaking party. Are you kidding me right now? And nobody even bothers to call the older one. Nobody sent him, sent him a memo. He had to hear the stereo turned up to figure out something was happening. Seriously? Now... Again, if you've heard this story before, it's, I think it's pretty easy to fall into the temptation of picking on the older brother. That's eh, self-righteous, stick in the mud, stuck up. Like, what, what's his deal anyway? Get over yourself. Be happy. Have, go to the party. But I think that really misses the point. Because parables are designed to do what all great stories are designed to do. They're designed to draw you in. They're designed to teach you empathy. And perhaps even help you come to yourself. So before we, we hustle too quickly past Big Brother, uh, can you get a feel for who he is and why he's really mad? Again, not, not justifying, but just try to understand him, why he feels that way. And so this brother really is, in many ways, the stereotypical older brother, much to his great chagrin, I'm sure. And so he's going to stick it to his dad with a lot less drama and fuss than the little one. But he's going to stick it to him, nonetheless. Um, and so he does. And yet, once again, the dad surprises us with his response. So now we're at verse 25. Or sorry, verse 28, excuse me. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you, never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Where's my dang goat? But... When this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And I would argue that these verses are the punchline, not only of this parable, but of the whole chapter of all of the lost and the found things. Uh, which means we need to revisit something really, really important. Who is Jesus talking to? What is this story actually about? Who is it for? Did you catch it? Verse 1. But the Pharisees and scribes muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And then Jesus told them this parable. So the whole reason we have one of the most beloved stories in Christendom is because Jesus is responding to the Pharisees. This story is actually for them. It's actually about them. 
Now, I know you've been talking about the Pharisees and the scribes. They're kind of they're the, the sidekicks, right? They go together. Uh, while you're making your way through the Gospel of Luke, uh, they are Jesus' bitterest enemies, the source of his harshest words, his biggest conflicts. They are acutely responsible for his execution. And did you know that Jesus actually had way more in common with the Pharisees than any other denomination, if you will, in ancient Palestine? They were by far the most similar, uh, especially theologically. They, all, they believed in the same essential theological doctrine about who God is and what was going to happen and the resurrection, um, angels and demons, the spiritual world. They were on the same page with all of that. They both had a very, very deep love and passion for the Old Testament. They actually were very closely aligned. And I think why they frustrated Jesus so much is because these were the people who should have known God the best. And they didn't know him at all. They didn't know him at all. Because when the older brother looks at dad, he does not see the tender, extravagantly generous parent. He just sees just, sees just a stingy old miser. And he holds him in contempt. And while the older brother has had constant physical proximity to the father, right? They work together every day. We learn that actually... Emotionally and relationally, the older brother is also in the far country. He is far away, too. But his estrangement is actually more dangerous simply because it's less obvious. It's not as noticeable. It's the simmering resentment that slowly corrodes away the soul. Instead of the flagrant debauchery that sort of burns everything down in a blaze of glory. And yet, it is the father's response to the oldest son to the Pharisees that is the punchline of this whole story. So let's read it one more time. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad. This brother of yours was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and is found. So there's one more nerdy Greek fact I want to subject you to. Uh, that I think is really important. So in our English uh, Bibles, the father addresses the oldest son as my son, but the Greek word for that is not the normal word for son, which would be we us, the one just kind of used in regular conversation. Um, it's actually the word technon. Everybody say technon. Very nice, good job. You make great uh, students in my freshman seminars. Uh, and so the closest in English we could get is, is translating a child, but, but that doesn't really work because uh, this is a term uh, of affection and endearment that is used to address an adult male child. We, we, don't, we don't really have something like that in English. It's a term of affection and, and endearment you, use, you, you would use speaking to your adult son. It's very warm, very intimate. Uh, and here's the point. Notice the tone that the father uses to address the oldest son. The tone that God is using to address the Pharisees. My dear child, you're always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we've got to celebrate. Your brother was dead and he's alive. He was lost and we got him back. We've got to throw a party. And you can come too. So Jesus ends this story with an unspoken invitation and a cliffhanger. The older brother is invited to the father's party too. Is he going to go? The younger brother had to overcome the obstacle of shame. Now the older brother has to overcome the obstacle of pride. 
By the way, I have a sneaking suspicion, right? Luke is writing this gospel. Luke, who, we also, who also writes Acts, who travels with the Apostle Paul. I wonder if he's got Paul in his mind as he's writing this story down. The older brother who did, in fact, go into the party. But neither here nor there. Um, but here's the good news of the gospel. The father is thrown a giant party and he wants all of his kids to be there. All of them. The rebels and the rule followers. Uh, the Enneagram 7s and the Enneagram 1s. If you're into that Kool-Aid like my students are, they love it. Um, the, the slackers and the overachievers. The selfish and the resentful. You're all invited. With all your twisty motives. Uh, in fact, he's actually begging you to come. And he gave, a lot, gave up a lot more than liquidated assets so that you could go. He gave up his own deeply beloved son. Not a cross. So here are some invitations for you, and this first one is for everybody. So I would invite you to spend some time this week in this passage uh, alone with the Lord and ask him who you are in this story at this moment. Because bear in mind, you could be different characters at different points in your life. But this week, at this season in your life, who are you in this story? Ask the Holy Spirit to help you come to yourself to see what you maybe haven't seen before. He give you a Holy, Holy Spirit reality check uh, and ask him how you might respond when you do that. Also, today's Father's Day. Shout out to you dads. We're so glad to have you. You are a gift and a blessing uh, and you do reflect who God is. Uh, also, you're a broken, sinful human being if you hadn't noticed that. Uh, so am I and Jesus loves you and his grace is enough for you too. And so, um, shout out to dads. Obviously, I've not been a dad not going to be a dad, uh, but it looks hard. And so I did want to offer a word of encouragement to you. I am willing to bet that uh, just as this day can be really tough on kids who have hard relationships with their dads, it might be kind of hard on some dads who have tough relationships with their kids. Um, relationships are kind of complicated. In fact, for some of you, for some dads, uh, you may really kind of hate this day, actually, because it just reminds you of all the ways that you have not been the father you had hoped you would be, that you've wanted to be. You're reminded of your failures and your shortcomings and your strained relationships with your own children. So for all you dads out there who have complicated relationships with their kids, uh, know this. God does, too. He does. He knows all about having an estranged relationship with his children. And the story's not over for him, and it's not over for you either. He's still doing a new thing. And dads, you are never going to be uh, the father you want to be without first being the technon, the beloved child, um, in whom the father takes great delight, regardless of what you've done or what you haven't done. And so if you are ready to repent... In the sense of this story, and to realize that your current setup just isn't working out the way that you wanted it to. And that something needs to change. I just invite you to pray with me. And pray with me right now. Dad, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for all the ways that I live like the younger or the older brother. And you can choose in your heart which one resonates with you. Thanks for sending your own son to rescue me. And please help me know what it means to be your beloved child, and help me reflect that love to my own children this week and this day. Amen. Here we go. Visit
Thanks for joining us today at Chapel Hill Church. If you'd like to visit us in person, we're located at 7700 Scancy Avenue, Gig Harbor, Washington. Our worship services are Sundays at 9 and 10.30. We hope to see you there. To learn more about our upcoming events, visit us online at chapelhillpc.org. How sweet on a Sabbath morning. Church in the valley by the wild.